I ask you to turn your Bibles to Paul's first letter to Timothy, chapter 1. This morning our focus will be on verses 18 to 20. Remember, the Apostle Paul is encouraging and exhorting young Timothy to inspire him in his leadership of the church at Ephesus, to give you a little bit, just a little bit of background. Children, here are your questions for this morning. First, Paul says Timothy should hold the faith and a good conscience. First, what is the faith he is talking about? And two, what is a conscience? And how can we make sure that we do things with a good conscience? Two, Paul tells Timothy he must be ready for warfare. What kind of war is he talking about? And three, why does Paul describe someone who has rejected God's truth as a shipwreck? First Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 18, this is the word of God. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. There ends a reading of God's word. Let us pray together. Almighty God, we thank you so much for your word. Your word is truth, and your word is powerful. Now we pray through the preaching of your word that your truth and your power would go forward. We know that's only possible when your word and your spirit are at work together. And so, Lord, we pray that you would send your spirit in a special way to help the preacher and help all of us who will hear from your word this morning that we might truly receive from you that which we must hear today. And we come to you in the name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. The task that Timothy has is daunting. It's daunting for him, it's daunting for the leaders of the church in Ephesus, it's daunting for the church itself. They live in very difficult times. There's trouble from within the church, and there's trouble from outside the church, which is the constant pattern that the church lives in. The engagement that they're involved in is so intense that Paul does not hesitate to call it warfare. They are in warfare. They're facing enemies, enemies of the gospel. Again, some from without the church, but some from right within the church. And Paul's telling Timothy that he needs to go forward with confidence to do the task that he's been called to do, that which was prophesied over him, that he would be a minister of the gospel, that he would be able to preach and teach and lead with authority that God-given authority that was prophesied over him and confirmed by the laying of hands on him by the elders. 
Paul has a special place in his heart for Timothy. Timothy was mentored by Paul. Paul calls Timothy his child. Which makes what he says next, in some senses, all the more profound. My child, you are going to war. My child, you're going to war. Those words. I can't imagine saying those words to a child. To my own child. I hope I never have to say them to my child. In a real sense, in this world, in the warfares that we have on the face of the earth. Any of you parents of military, children in the military, you, I'm sure, never want to say child, you are going off to war. If I were to say that to my child or to any of my children, I think the thing on top of my list would be to say, no matter what happens out there, trust in the Lord. You're in his hands. He's with you. Don't be afraid. Be courageous. Well, that would be true for our kind of warfare man-to-man. -man. It's also true for spiritual warfare. That's the kind of warfare that Timothy and the leaders and the church and we are engaged in. We're engaged in a spiritual warfare. Paul charges Timothy to do what he's called to do. Timothy's been trained. Timothy's been commissioned. Timothy's been prophesied over. He's charged with his call. And in anticipation of that, Paul wants him to be ready to be engaged in this warfare. He's already engaged in one sense. But Timothy needs to know that in the warfare in which he's engaged, that the Lord is with him. And as Timothy takes on this sort of new level of responsibility and authority, as he receives it from someone who has, you might say, rank over him as an apostle, giving him authority to oversee the church as a leader, Timothy needs to be especially aware that he needs to be prepared to engage in the warfare. Again, Paul is instilling confidence in him. Timothy's confidence is not in himself, but it's in the God of salvation and the word that he's given to Timothy. That's the warfare. Timothy has to remember whose army he's in. And he has to remember the nature of the conflict. I couldn't help but think of the children's song, I may never march in the infantry, ride in the cavalry, shoot the artillery. I may never fly or the enemy, but I'm in the Lord's army. Yes, sir, I'm in the Lord's army. That's what we're in. That's what Timothy was in, in the Lord's army. And he can never forget that. What kind of warfare is this? It's a spiritual warfare. In history, the church has made big mistakes in this very area, thinking that our warfare is boots on the ground, sometimes merging way too much. The church and the state making some great mistakes throughout history. This unhealthy fusion, weaponized, radicalized Christianity. That's, 
That's not the kind of warfare that we are involved in. We are involved in a warfare that is indeed intense, but it's a spiritual warfare. And so those who are engaged in the warfare need to be trained. No one should go into conflict without proper training. Know your weapons. Know that your weapon, first and foremost, Timothy, is the authoritative, powerful sword of the word of God. And your matching strength will come from prayer. The word of God and prayer. Do not go into battle without good use of the word of God bolstered up by prayer. Timothy was well equipped with the word. He had learned the word from childhood, the Old Testament in particular, from his godly mother and his godly grandmother. He had been further instructed when the work of Christ was completed about how all that Old Testament was fulfilled in the person of Christ. So now Timothy has the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation unto all those who believe in his hands, you might say, with the sword of the gospel, the sword of the spirit, the word of God. And so he's ready and needs to be ready to use it. You know if you're going to use any kind of weapon that you need to train with the weapon. You see those magnificent sword fights in movies when there's finally an engagement with the enemy and the person who's involved in those sword fights obviously has trained well as you see those swords click back and forth with finesse. But whatever the weapon is, you don't want to try to use a weapon without being trained, whether it's swords or guns or whatever it might be. Timothy's trained with the word. But he also has to understand that that word is contained in what Paul here calls the faith. The faith, the whole counsel of God in scripture, summarized in the gospel. But he's also got to do so with a clean, a good conscience, that his motives, that which drives him, that which stirs him, that which makes him tick has to be right before God and in his own conscience. God requires that of those who are going to be his people. Sound doctrine and sound motives. So Timothy needs to have those things in place. But again, know the nature of your battle. Know the nature of your warfare. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10. Though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. The first part of that is clear. We're taking captives for Christ. That's what Timothy is ultimately commissioned to do. And again, he's been commissioned. He's not taking this on himself. He's not a mercenary. He's not in this for his own gain. He's in this working for the Lord for the advancement of his kingdom for the good of souls. Know your mission. I see Timothy's mission as twofold. To defend 
and to liberate. If you read through 1 and 2 Timothy, one of Timothy's main charges is to defend the church against falsehood, against enemies that come with false teaching trying to get into the church, but also those who may be bringing up false churches, false teaching within the church. That defensive thing where we're protecting the people of God from things that can lead them astray. Very militaristic. Defend the fortress. Not that we're an enclosed fortress where people can't come in. But this is to be a safe place for the people of God to receive the truth, to be strengthened and nurtured, protected against false teaching. That's Timothy's task. But he's also called, he's also called to go on the offensive. To go out to liberate captives. One of Timothy's calls is to do the work of an evangelist. He's go out, go, to go out to, to liberate captives, not to kill people, but to save them. It's called to go out and save them. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, if you want to turn there, just briefly. Going to bring the message of life, not the law that kills. We preach the law, but never without the gospel. The law kills, the gospel saves. 2 Corinthians 3, 5 to 9. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of his glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. The law kills, the gospel brings to life. If you want to kill somebody spiritually, there are two very easy ways to do it. One is to tell them that everything's fine. It's all good. Tell captives that they're really free. Tell people that are at war with God that they're at peace with God. That's one sure way to kill people spiritually. The other way is to just preach the law, to preach condemnation, to preach sin, to preach wrath. But if you want to save people, Preach the gospel because there's life in Christ Jesus. Timothy's charged, charged to do his duty as a soldier of God. 
And in doing so, he can't be afraid. There are many enemies. There are many enemies, but don't be afraid. God is with you. I think it's helpful for all of us to remember that. One thing we often forget is that there's a whole host of heaven. There's the whole host of angels. Think of the vast army that God has. Sometimes we forget just how great a kingdom God's kingdom is. That word heavenly host is a very military term. It applies to the spiritual warfare in which we're engaged. So don't be afraid, but know your enemy. Know the enemy that captivates people who are unbelievers is just that. Their enemy, their own enemy is unbelief. Falsehood. Whatever that may be, if it's without Christ, that's, that's their enemy. They're captive to their unbelief and only the gospel can set them free. But there are other enemies as well working in this whole situation. Certainly the devil is constantly at work trying to keep people in his grips, him and all of his troops. There's this whole spiritual warfare going on. But Timothy, don't be afraid. You're on the right side. You're in the right army. And think about this, Timothy. The only thing that you have to worry about is the simple fact that they can only kill your body. And Paul could say, take it from me. While it's great to be here and while I am in Christ now and while my life means Christ, death itself is even better. So don't be afraid. The worst they can do to you those who are literal enemies of the church and his people, the worst they can do is kill your body. But you are in a kingdom that can't fail. Never forget that. Now, Timothy does have a battle, you might say, on the ground because there are enemies within the church. And enemies within the church are not always so easily marked. In conventional warfare, you have uniforms. My mind goes back to the revolution and kind of what I think was sort of a silly caricature, but also somewhat true, is you would have the British soldiers in bright red and you'd have the colonial soldiers in bright blue and they would stand across from each other and they knew who the enemy was. It's not the way it works in the church. It's not the way it works in a lot of warfare. Sometimes the enemy's not so distinctly marked. It's part of what makes guerrilla warfare so horrendous. All war is hell. But guerrilla warfare has angles to it where you can't necessarily recognize the enemy that easily. The test is the word of God in spiritual warfare and the fruits of What's even worse is when someone manages to get your uniform and they get within the ranks and they turn on their own soldiers because they go undetected. That's very often the way it works in the church, that some right within the ranks of the church are causing trouble right within the church as enemies of the church. You might say that they're renegades. 
and their weapons are wrong doctrine and wrong motives. And they're more than just deserters, although they're deserters in one sense, they're deserters who have turned on their own army and they're trying to do damage. Paul mentions these two as individuals right within the church. Hymenaeus in particular here and Alexander. We'll meet Alexander later. We'll meet the kind of thing that they were teaching later, Lord willing, in Paul's second letter. But to summarize, here's what they did. They've swerved from the truth and they've neglected the true faith and they don't have a good conscience. And so they have this dreadful combination. And Paul says because of that, they have shipwrecked their faith. Shipwrecked. Shift from ground warfare, shift maybe from air warfare to, for, to sea war, war at sea. Picture these men in this naval battleship, and they've, they've gone off course, they're on the high seas, and they've, they've lost their point of direction, they've cut themselves off from the true command. They're taking their own course, and because of that, they've trashed and crashed their faith. To the point where Paul says they've gotten to be where they're blasphemers. That's how far there's in, these individuals have gotten. They're blasphemers. Paul has already had to deal with them. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Now, some take this to mean the conventional sense of excommunication, that they've simply been put out of the church. And so in your outline, I have a question, Mark, after the word restorable. Are they restorable? Are these two individuals who are turned over to Satan, can they ever return? It seems so strange, doesn't it, that Paul says, I've turned them over to Satan. Paul, have you really turned them over to the enemy? Have you turned them over to the enemy? Well, I'm not so sure that this is just the conventional sense of excommunication. Paul is teaching them not to blaspheme. He's following what Jude says, have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Or what James says, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. That's the motive, what the end result is for Hymenaeus and Alexander. We don't know. The jury is still out. We don't know what ultimately happened to them. It was simply excommunication. They're feeling what it means to be cut off from the people of God. If they're really given over 
to the influences of the very real Satan. It could be something very entirely different where they feel the torment of their souls at the depth of their being. Or maybe even some kind of bodily affliction to see and to see more clearly and to be reminded of the absolute misery of not being right with God and shipwrecking that which once looked like faith. What a horrible thing. I know one parent who looked at this and were hit hard with the realization that they may well need to ask God to remove his hand of protection from the rebellious child. Can you imagine? But for their own good so that they would repent and come home. Paul turns these men over to Satan, ultimately for their own good. We have to remember that God is always sovereign. And even the devil's work ultimately is in complete subjection to God's absolute sovereignty. Well, Timothy needed to stay focused. Paul says later to Timothy, chapter 6, As for you, O man of God, flee these things, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of eternal life to which you were called, and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. And he goes on to charge Timothy again. Timothy, stay focused. Remember who your commander is. Look right back at verse 17. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. He is your commander. And the captain of your faith is Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, who has had the victory already over sin and death and Satan himself. Keep your eyes fixed on him. And keep your armor on for the combat. You probably know where I'm going next. If you want to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6. People, we may not be leaders in the church, we may be. This passage applies to all saints. Remembering that we're engaged in varying degrees in this real warfare, this real spiritual warfare. So here's what Paul says to the church at Ephesus and to all the churches. 6 beginning in 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. 
Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take the shield of faith, which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. This is for all of us. But I am going to say this for our young people, especially those who are about to embark on a life outside of your immediate covenant family and your immediate covenant church, you need to be ready and you need to be well armed. Talked earlier about training. Now is the time to train. The battle might be tough for you now. The warfare might be intense for you now, wherever you are. But I can tell you when you step out, whether it's in the workplace or in college, the battle is going to get more intense. And you need to be well equipped knowing how to handle the sword of the Spirit and having the whole armor of God in place. But I'm going to look at the congregation and do what Paul does sometimes and say, my children, my children, you are in a warfare. You're going to war, my children. And I'm not really allowed to use these terms out of my context. Not being a military man, but when it comes to spiritual warfare, I can steal these two things. Semper Fi, be always faithful to your God and to his word. And Semper Paratus, be always ready. My children, you're going to war. Let's pray. Lord our God, even now as we pray, we are aware that we are engaged in spiritual warfare. And there's no better place for us to be as we anticipate the battle that we're in, the warfare that we're in, than to be before the throne of our mighty God, you who are always with us. Before the throne of grace upon which our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, King of kings and Lord of lords, reigns. Lord, we thank you that you have captured us through Christ, through your gospel, and brought us into your kingdom. And knowing that we're on the right side of the warfare, we ask that you would help us to be well equipped, to be engaged, especially for our leaders to defend and protect the church, but also to make captives for Christ through the preaching and the teaching of the gospel. For all of us, Lord, may we be strong in you and in your mighty power. And we do come to you in the name of our Savior Jesus, with the help of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This morning we have the privilege of celebrating the Lord's Supper. Clear reminder to us that our